tell you that it is a great pleasure to be here today. As Norflet said, I've been a member here since 1994, and uh, most of that time I've been in Russia. With you as a partner, your gifts have made it possible to plant a church in Siberia, to prepare leaders for ministry through teaching at a Bible college, preparing orphans for life, giving them life skills and giving them Jesus. And most recently, just less than a week ago, I returned from a trip. I was invited to go to Egypt to teach and train leaders there, many of whom recently came to faith from Islam. God is doing amazing things. So thank you. Thank you for your part in that. I want to share you, with you something today that's been very important to me. It's probably of all the things that I've studied in the last 10, 15 years, this has been the most profound. And what I'm going to share with you is not just a message, because you know preachers need to come up with messages, so they come up with the messages. This came out of my own life. There was a time 15 years ago or so, where I thought, you know, we're talking all the time in church that Christianity isn't a religion, it's a relationship. And I thought, well, that sounds good. Do I really know God? And so out of my quest to really know God and seeking Him, part of this is what came out. And so what I'm going to share with you really came out of my own devotions. I later formed it into a message. It's actually a series of, of five messages I'll be sharing the next one's on Tuesday night, so I hope you come out. And I've shared these, as I said, in, in Russia, just recently in Egypt. And, um, but it's, I want to share with you a little frustration. It's a frustration probably any teacher has, particularly a preacher. You prepare a, a message and you do this much study. And if God blesses you, you have this much experience with God. And you come to church and you have this much time. And in this much time, you can share that much information. So I'm going to give you that much today. And I hope that you will listen and apply it. A pastor friend of mine, I was bemoaning with him how hard it is to give to the congregation what it is you want to give. And he said, you know, preaching is like, like taking breadcrumbs and throwing them out and making a path. And if people want to follow the path, they can find the breadcrumbs and they can follow it and they can learn what you learned. So all I'm going to do to you, for you today is give you a path. Um, and I hope that you'll follow it. And I hope that it'll come on Tuesday nights because we'll flesh out a lot of what I'm saying today briefly on Tuesday nights. I'm going to talk to you about foundations. I'm going to talk to you about God's love. God's love, I think, is something we almost take for granted. We talk about it so much in Christian circles that maybe it even loses its meaning. You know, I think about the love of God. What's the first thing that comes to mind if you think of the love of God? Usually what comes to mind is that God loves us. And of course he does. That's an awesome thing, that God loves us. Um, but I want you to see today that that's not the starting point of love. Uh, for 11 years, I lived with my family in a city called Kursk in Russia. We lived in an apartment building on ninth floor of 16. And just below our apartment, there it is, you can see up there, there's, it looks like a wall. It's actually the beginnings of a building. They started building a building, they got the foundation done, and then they abandoned it for the first five or so years that we lived there. We overlooked, out of our bedroom window was this abandoned um, construction site. And then 
while we were living there, they continued the building process. They picked it up and they expanded the foundation to make a bigger building than it was initially. And they built this two-story little shopping center. And at one point, in the process of them building it, you could see, just above ground level, you could see these gigantic concrete blocks about this big, very deep, all you know, lined up, great big blocks. And on top of these blocks, they laid the floor for the first floor, and then they built the walls for the first floor and the second floor. What are those blocks? It's the foundation. You might think they're the foundation, but I'd like to argue it's not really the foundation. It is a foundation on which they laid the floor and then the walls, but that great big concrete block can really be compared to God's love for us. God's love for us is a foundation on which we build our lives. But that concrete block, if it were just laid on the ground, a whole string of them, and then they built a, a building on it, would be a very poor foundation because the rain would come and it would wash the ground out from underneath that concrete block and the whole thing would collapse. What I want you to see today is that there is a foundation to God's love for us. God's love for us is not the starting point of love. There is a love which comes logically and chronologically prior to God's love for us, and it is the foundation on which God's love for us stands. And so we can know that our building is secure because the foundation on which we're building it is absolutely secure. You know, sometimes we come to church and we hear, I love your neighbor. And you think, boy, if only people knew my neighbor, they'd know how hard that was. And they well, I ought to love my neighbor, but I'll tell you, you'll never love your neighbor, which is the second command, if you don't know the first command, that love God. You can't love your neighbor if you don't love God, and you'll never love God unless you know that God loves you. Here in his love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us. And you'll never really understand that God loves you unless you understand that God is love in his very essence. That's who he is. And that's what I want to talk to you today. So my hope is that today we talk about this foundational love, that it will elicit in you a confidence in God's love for you. It will elicit in you a response of love to God. Yes, God, I love you. And overflow and love for your neighbor and your spouse and everyone else. In order to understand this foundational love, we need to look back in the Bible, in the very beginnings of the Bible. Think for a minute, where in the Bible do you think is the first place where the word love is used? Now, I have to say, if you read the NIV, there's a word hesed, which is better translated loving kindness. So if you look in the Bible, it might not be the same as what I tell you. But the first place of the word love, achav in, in Hebrew, you might think the first place of the word love is going to be right after God created the world. God created the world and he loved the world. We know that God does love the world, but the word isn't used there. God said it's good, but he didn't say he loves us. He does love us, but he didn't say it. You might think, well, probably the first use of the word love is of Adam who loved his wife Eve. I really hope that Adam did love his wife Eve, but the word is never used. The first use of the word love in the Bible 
comes in Genesis 22. And you can turn there if you have your Bibles, Pew Bibles. First book of the Bible, chapter 22. We'll hang out here for a while. The first use of the word love has to do with the love of a father for his son. It's the love of Abraham for Isaac. And this story serves as a model, a picture of the love which is primary, which is the love of all loves, the foundation of every love. So let's turn to Genesis 22. I'm going to read verses 1 through 13. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will show you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took his two young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the, cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on his son Isaac. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife, and they went, both of them, together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them together. Then they came to the place of which God had told them. Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. The first use of the word love, the love of a father for his son, the love of Abraham for Isaac, and the call on Abraham to sacrifice that son. You might wonder, well, why did Abraham love his son so much? Of course, it's natural for a father to love his sons, his children. I have three children. I love them immensely. Can't imagine what Abraham went through. Abraham, of course, 
waited, perhaps why he loved his son Isaac so much is that he waited a long time. If you know the story of Abraham, you know that God called him out of his homeland to leave and promised him several things. Among them was that he would be the father of many nations, but he didn't have any children. God promised him a child. He waited 25 years for Isaac to be born. So Isaac was a long-awaited child. And of course, Isaac was the son of promise. So many things had been promised to Abraham, and it was all going to come through Isaac. Whatever the reasons, we know that Abraham loved his son because God looked down at the relationship between Abraham and Isaac, and God called it love. He pointed out, it's your son whom you love. So, a love of the father for the son is the first love. But this is not just a simple story. This is a prophecy. There are two types of prophecy in the Bible. One we're more uh, familiar with is a verbal prophecy. God said it and it happened. So, God said, a virgin will be with child and bear a son. And then, later it happened in Mary and Jesus. It's a verbal prophecy. There's also a typological prophecy which is an event that happens, and then it happens again in a more full way, a more complete way. The literary term for this, of course, is a foreshadowing. So what we have here is a typological prophecy, a foreshadowing of something greater to come. And of course, that greater thing to come that this points to, love of Abraham for Isaac, is the love of God the Father for God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus. There's lots of parallels between this story in Genesis 22 and what we have in the New Testament in Jesus. I want to point out just a very few. One is that the sacrifice happened by a predetermined plan. It's no accident. God's Abraham didn't just in a whim think, oh my gosh, I should sacrifice my son, grabbed a knife and, and killed him. No, God spoke to Abraham. Abraham rose up early, he prepared the wood, he got his servant, he got the donkey, he got his son. They traveled for three days. And then he carried out, or almost carried out, what God told him to do. Jesus' sacrifice for us was also a predetermined plan. Before any of us were born, before there was anything, God had already determined that he was going to give his son for you and me. It was no accident. Another foreshadowing, another parallel here, is that Isaac carried his own wood. So when they got close to the place, Abraham left the donkey and the servant and put the wood onto Isaac, from which we know that he was old enough to be a strong young man. And Isaac carried his own wood on which he was going to die, just like Jesus. The cross was laid on his shoulders, and he carried the wood on which he would die. And both were dead for three days, at least figuratively. So imagine Abraham's point of view from the moment that God spoke to him and said, take your son whom you love and offer him. In Abraham's mind, Isaac was as good as dead. And he was as good as dead for three days when Hebrews tells us that he received him back as if from the dead, just like Jesus, risen on the third day. 
So this is a type of what's to come, the love of a father for his son. There's one more parallel I want you to see. It's very important. It comes here as a, as a prophecy. So Isaac asks a question, a very logical question. He knows they're going to make a burnt offering. And in uh, verse 7, he says to his father, he says, hey, look, here's, so there's the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? It's a very logical question. I don't know, I've often wondered, had Abraham thought through what he was going to say? Was he thinking, what if Isaac asked me, what am I going to say? I have no idea. But I know that Abraham's answer was prophetic. Abraham was a prophet. Whether God spoke to him in that moment or God had spoken to him already, Abraham didn't understand what he was saying like many prophets didn't. But his answer was prophetic. He said to Isaac, God will provide a lamb. Now, the story goes on. Abraham takes Isaac, binds him, and he's about to slaughter him when God stops him. It was all just a test of his faith. But Abraham looks up, and he sees in the thicket a ram with horns and caught in the thicket. So there's kind of these thorns around his head, and he's caught there. And God says, take that ram and offer him in place of your son Isaac. But two things I want to point out. This is a prophecy so there's an immediate fulfillment of, you know, Isaac asks the question, where is the ram? And there's, uh, where's the lamb? And Abraham answers, God will provide the, a lamb. And then there's seemingly a fulfillment. And this sometimes happens in Scripture, that there's a prophecy and there's an immediate fulfillment, but there's usually a greater fulfillment to come later. And so it seems like there's a fulfillment... But it's also important to note that Abraham prophesied that God would provide a lamb. What's provided is a ram. It's a different word. I mean, it's very close. You could say, yeah, God answered the prophecy. And yet the prophecy really remains unanswered. And certainly the greater fulfillment remains unseen. And so Isaac's question, where is the lamb? It's like a question that rings out in the universe. Where is the lamb? And there's no answer. And other prophets come, Isaiah came, Ezekiel came, and there's no answer. And then one day, God sends the last Old Testament-style prophet, John the Baptist, in the New Testament, in the style of the Old Testament. And this prophet, standing by the River Jordan, sees a man coming to him, that is Jesus. The question rang out, where is the lamb? And he points and he says to Jesus, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And that is the answer to Isaac's question. It took 2,000 years to get the answer. Do you see that Genesis 22, the story of a father who loves his son, Abraham's love for Isaac, is all pointing towards the greater fulfillment in God the Father and his son Jesus. So the love of a father for his son is the first and primary, the greatest love. But this is further elaborated in the New Testament, and we'll see it 
if we look at the first use of the word love in the New Testament. The first use of the word love in the New Testament is Matthew 3, comes at Jesus' baptism, which we were just talking about. You heard a sermon on it, I understand, a few weeks ago. Do you remember the scene? Jesus comes to John the Baptist to get baptized. He goes into the water. And I hope, I hope you see that the whole Trinity is here, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So Jesus is in the water coming out. The Holy Spirit descends like a dove, and there's a voice from heaven that is God the Father. So all three persons of the Trinity are present here, and God the Father speaks about his Son. Now, God the Father spoke audibly from heaven three times in the life of Jesus, as recorded in Scripture. Two of those times, he said almost exactly the same thing at his baptism and the transfiguration. Now, I don't know about you, but though I've sensed God speak at times, I have never heard him audibly speak from heaven so that other people around me would hear. It seems to me, I don't know about you, but it seems to me that if God speaks audibly from heaven in a way that everybody can hear, he's probably saying something important and we ought to pay attention. And if he says the same thing twice, I really think this is key and we ought to pay attention. So what does God say? What is the one thing, apparently, that God really wants us to know about Jesus? He says, this is my son whom I love. That's what the father wants us to know about Jesus. This is my son. I love him. This, Grace Church, this is the love that comes before all loves. It's the foundation of everything. And here we see the Trinity. This is important to understand. The Father loves the Son. They live in this loving relationship. There's no reference yet here to the Holy Spirit. Come on Tuesday nights, we'll talk about that. But this is important to understand because, you know, we know the foundation. We know that God says of himself that God is love. God in his very essence is love. Do you know that there's no other religion on earth that could say God is love unless there is something of a trinity? Because God is, was love in his very essence before anything was created. So how could God be love if there was no object for his love? But God was love in his very essence before there were people or angels or animals or anything. And his love existed within himself between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now... What is Doug always asking us every Sunday? Who are we? A mosaic. Now think about this for a minute. Have you ever thought about this? God himself is a mosaic. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, different in persons and yet one whole. More than we can be one whole. And we will never be a full mosaic. We will never love our neighbors as ourselves unless we are deeply rooted in God's love in God who is himself love in his very essence. I heard a preacher say this who got me, started on this whole thing. Ronnie Stevens came to Kursk 
where I taught at the Bible college. I sat in on his class, one of the few classes I listened to, mostly I taught. He taught through the Gospel of John. He came to this point and he said, the love of the Father for the Son is the key to everything. And I thought, that's thought-provoking. And I thought about it. And, and, and what I'm sharing with you is kind of the result. It's the key to everything. It's the foundation on which everything is built. Without the love of the Father for the Son, the gospel makes no sense. It makes no sense. And to help us understand that, let's look at the first use of the word love in the Gospel of John. This is a very well-known verse. Probably most of you could quote it. The best-known verse among evangelicals in the whole Bible, John 3.16. It says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Now, we quote this and we speak about God's love for us. And that's right. It says, for God so loved the world. God so loved us. But that's not all it says. There's a comparison here. For God so loved the world that he gave his son. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So what's the relationship between this world and the son? And this verse implies, assumes, a love of the father for the son. To help you understand that, let's imagine for just a minute that God offered something other than his son. So God thought, I want to impress people with how much I love them. What's the biggest thing that people could ever imagine on earth? Well, the biggest thing I know of on earth is Mount Everest. So God says, I'll sacrifice Mount Everest for people so that they know that I love them. If God did that, what would John 3.16 sound like? Well, for God so loved the world that he gave a pile of rocks. Do you feel loved? Well, God made one pile of rocks. He can make another pile of rocks. What's the big deal? It's no sacrifice to him. Or let's imagine that God did sacrifice his son, but he didn't love his son. There's lots of unfortunate stories like this in history. I lived in Russia for most of my adult life. Ivan the Terrible, back in the Dark Ages, a czar of Russia, in a fit of rage, killed his own son. He probably was jealous, probably was afraid that his son would rebel against him when he grew up. Imagine that God were like that. It's horrible. But imagine, just for the sake of argument, what would John 3.16 sound like? For God so loved the world that he gave his rebellious son. Now do you feel loved? Well, if God wanted to get him out of the way, it's no sacrifice. It's no gift to you. It's no statement of love. So you see that, that God only loves the world, as expressed here, if he loves his son. God's love for us is a measure, an extension of his love for his son. Jesus will make this much, much more clear. Jesus, many times in the Gospel of John, refers to the love of the Father for the Son. It's also, you look throughout the New Testament, you'll find it's a lot more common than we realize. And come on Tuesday nights, we'll look at, at John 5 and John 10 and John 14 through 17 and John 20 and all of those places it talks about the love of the Father for the Son. But I want to bring your attention to one last verse in John 15, 9. Jesus sums up really the whole gospel in one sense. Just a few hours before he would die, his last instructions to his disciples, he says, as the Father has loved me, 
so I have loved you. Listen to that. Jesus speaking. He says, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. So what we receive is the overflow of the love of the Father for the Son. So imagine, imagine a fountain. And spewing out of the top of the fountain is the love of the Father, and it flows down into the Son as this great basin, and the basin fills up, it fills up to overflowing, and it flows out from the Son to us, and the Son loves us with that love which with, with which the Father loves Him. We receive the overflow of the love of the Father for the Son. Now, we all know, we've all heard stories, we've probably seen it in our own lives, Look at families. Kids who are abused tend to generally go up, grow up and abuse their own children when they grow up because they repeat what they've learned. There's no one better equipped to love his or her own children than the child who was loved when little. And there's no one, listen, brothers and sisters in Jesus, there is no one more equipped to love you than Jesus, who is perfectly loved by his Father. But that's not the end of the verse. The verse ends with what is both a command and an invitation. Jesus says, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you, and here comes the invitation, abide in my love. Now, abide is a word maybe we don't understand. It's translated various ways. It means stay, it's translated as stay, remain, continue, live. It's a very common word. It's used hundreds, maybe thousands of times. I'm not sure in the, in the New Testament. And in some context, it just means live. So when the disciples first came to Jesus and wanted to follow him, they said to him, where do you live? Where are you staying? And that's the same word. Where do you abide? And if you think of it in that sense, we all, you know, so I could ask you, well, where do you live? Well, I live in Detroit, or I live in East Point, or I live in Gross Point, or I live in, in St. Clair Shores. Where Jesus is saying, well, where do you live? Well, I live in the love of the Father for the Son. That's where I live. That's what abiding is. It's living in this love. Now, God's given us Scripture and prayer and meditation really as a tool and a place to meet with him. And, and abiding really has a lot to do, I would say, with, with meditation and prayer. Sometimes we think of prayer as listing requests to God. God, give me this, give me this, help me with that. And, and it is that, but a small part of our prayer really should be making requests to God. Prayer is spending time with God. It's abiding in God. It's contemplating God. And so what I'd love for you to do this week, what Jesus is inviting us to do, is to abide in his love, is to take some time in, in prayer and contemplation to quiet ourselves and be with God and to use a sanctified imagination. God gave us an imagination, and if it's informed by the Scripture, it's a great tool. Imagine a father and a son in this tremendous loving relationship with no strife, no jealousy, no bitterness. We'll flesh this out on Tuesday night um, from John 5. This amazing, perfect, loving relationship. 
Spend some time just imagining what would that look like, this perfect relationship. And then allow the Holy Spirit to come, and the Holy Spirit comes, and he says, Karen, John, come abide in my love. And we have this invitation to enter into this perfect relationship, which is the Holy Trinity, and live there. That's what the Christian life is. That's where we learn of God's love in its perfection. That's where we learn of God's love expressed to us, and that's where we'll learn to love one another. And I want you to know that you, we are absolutely positively secure in God's love because God's love for us is founded on this love of the Father for the Son, which could never stop. When could the God the Father ever stop loving his Son? Never. God's love will never end. We are absolutely secure. Take some time this week in the quiet of your own home or wherever you can find quiet and just ponder these things. Reread these scriptures. Ask God to make this the place where you live. It will change your life. When we see God and his goodness and his glory, it changes who we are. For God so loved the world all of us, that he gave the son of his love for us. Let's pray. Father, Jesus, Holy Spirit, I thank you for your goodness. I thank you that you are love in your very essence. I thank you that even though we fall short and we're sinful and we do shameful things, I thank you in spite of all those things, you invite us to come and make your love the place where we live. Bless us this week to contemplate these things and to grow in that love relationship with you. We pray this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Ken. Now, I've heard Ken share this three times. And each time I am so overwhelmed by the father's love for his son that God could do what he wants, but he chose to give heaven's best. He chose to give his son. So I just want us to sing this song and we're going to get out of here, but I want us to sing it with the perspective of how much God, the father loves God, the son and how he gave him for us in our imperfections, in our sometiminess. A perfect father loves a perfect son for wretches like us. So can you sing this with me? He loves us, oh, how he loves us, oh.